Welcome to Cine Apprentice, Episode 1. Uh, as always, I am your host, Ken, and for Cine Apprentice, this is my co-host, Anthony. Anthony, tell the world hello again. Hello, world. Oh, that again. was good. You, you've been told you have a bit of a buttery voice. I have, this. yeah. Yeah, it's it's a nice voice. It's, I was um, noticing that when I was listening back to the recording last time. Really? It, I did. It was oh, good. Right. Except you messaged me and you were just like, why didn't you tell me I had a lisp? And Rachel and I were both like, what are you talking about? Uh, no, you just you have I a think, really good voice. I think the conclusion that I've come to is that everyone has a slight lisp. Okay. Like whenever they make S sounds. Well, yeah. And I was just over-exaggerating that, like, in my own oh, mind. Okay. No, no, so, it was it was a good thing. Mm. But uh, Sin Apprentice is going to be different than Sin Babel. Sin Babel, uh, Clint and I will hold on to forever and, and refuse to let it go because our marriage is true. Our pod marriage is true. But uh, Anthony and I are going to do something very interesting. Anthony, how old are you? 19 as of September this 19. year. 19. So you're headed towards 20. Anthony yeah. is in that amazing age where he is just getting to where he's moving from watching movies to actually appreciating film. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I went through that process and it was a lot of reading and it was a lot of learning. It was a lot of digging through special features and things like that. And it was just this really exciting time where I realized, oh, these aren't just movies. They're not just for fun. There's love put into it. There really is. There's there's artistry and love. And it doesn't necessarily have to be unfun or not fun or, or not entertaining. There are lots of really great movies that are entertaining. But there is there's something to being able to really see a film and and understand why it works or why it why it connects or, or why some films are more appreciated than others. So what we're going to try with Cine Apprentice is uh, I am going to uh, come from the direction of I have seen most of these films and Anthony has not. And so what we're going to do each week is we're going to have two films that Anthony has assigned, classic films, uh, older films, and we're going to talk about everything from uh, the writing to the direction to the cinematography, what makes this film kind of an iconic or, or a go-to right. piece of cinema. I'm excited to watch The Room, for yes. sure. Yes, That's a 100% not primary. going to happen okay. on this podcast. All right. Uh, I've, I've got much better for you, Anthony. You've got to dream bigger, darling. But we're going we're gonna to tackle two classic films and talk about them generations apart because I'm 43 headed towards 44. Anthony is 19. And so we're going to have very different, probably sometimes, opinions about movies and, and uh, responses to movies. And yeah. I will probably discover that a lot of things worked for me because of nostalgia that you're like, I don't understand why old people care about this movie so I much. I don't understand why those twins had to have a whole sequence where they were rowing that boat. Yep, exactly. What's the point? Social network. Uh, so, and then at the end, we're going to have a, kind of a phase two of each episode where we're going to talk about something new. And, and Anthony and I are going to stick, I think, more to some of the things that have particularly interested him and that would be nostalgic for him. The MCU, anime, those sort of things, right. Star Wars. Um, and, and we'll just tackle those as we go. So. Okay. Uh, if it doesn't work, we will shift direction, but I'm, I'm really, I'm jazzed about it. So yeah, I'm excited to do it and I'm excited to see the results. All right. Yeah, we'll see. This week, Anthony was assigned Rushmore and Social Network. Yes. And these are two films, uh, years apart mm -hmm. that have really stood out to me over the years. And uh, then at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about Shang-Chi, which is the latest MCU Shang -Chi. entry. Shang-Chi. I think it's Shang-Chi. Like, Sean? G. Is Shang-Chi. Shi. 
I believe it's she. She. I believe it's Shang Shi. That's probably more culturally correct. I think so. <laughs> but uh, if my pronunciation is off, how did you yeah. pronounce it? Shang Shi. Shang instead of Shang yeah. or Shang. You kind of launch your throat towards it, like Shang, and then Shi. <laughs> you 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 push in and then you retreat. Xi. No, that's no. <laughs> no, that's too lispy. Shang Shi. Shang Shi. Uh, but we'll be doing vocal exercises later and learning <laughs> Chinese as we go. Uh, oh, anywho, cool. let's start with Rushmore. Rushmore came out in 1999. Rushmore is by uh, a very stylistic director named Wes Anderson. I think it was 1998. Liar. I think it was. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah I think it was. I have always attributed Rushmore to 1999. Rushmore is oh, a 1998 right. American coming of age uh, comedy drama film. I am already failing my Sin Apprentice with saying that Rushmore came out in 1999. <laughs> Rushmore came out in, sure, uh, the year of our Lord, 1998. And uh, Rushmore was a, a film that I saw right when I was Anthony's age, right when I was coming into my own, developing my cinematic palette, and instantly caught my attention. This is something different. The style is different. The direction is different. The screenwriting is different. At the time, uh, you know, since then, there's been a lot of kind of Wes Anderson imitators who have really leaned into their style. And, and that's really? probably not fair to even call them imitators, but just people who've been inspired by, oh, you can make art that is distinctly yours. And right. that's okay. You don't have to make as much of a, a cookie cutter product. Uh, but it, it stood out to me from the beginning. And, and admittedly, we went... Uh, because it was a Bill Murray movie. That's all we knew about it. Right. And so it was really surprising because this was a Bill Murray I had never seen before. But enough about my experience with it. Uh, Anthony, when you first saw Rushmore, what did you think? What was your immediate hit the credits impression? Oh, hit the credits? Yeah, like when the credits first rolled and, uh, you know, great song, great soundtrack mm -hmm. is playing. What what was it that, that your brain immediately said to you? Yeah, how refreshing. Really? Yeah. Even though it was a 1998 movie. Even though it's 23-ish years old. It's older than you. It's older than me. Okay. What was refreshing about it? So I've known the MCU my entire life. It's pretty much been the focus of my cinematic experience. So there's a very formulaic setup to MCU movies. Yes. What works? And this guy, Wes Anderson, he doesn't care about a formula as much as he does his own process. Yeah, and, and visually, once you watch some more Wes Anderson movies, which I'll definitely make sure you do, you'll notice it's not a formula. It's, it's, it is a very distinct style. I think I want to call it almost like a shadow box style because everything is very neatly and, and structurally framed yeah. within camera where it's uh, – and, and he does this more and more as he goes along. Uh, Clint referred to it almost as live-action stop-motion animation where he's using the actors almost in the way that you would use stop motion puppets in animation where they're very center frame and, and they're doing very, uh, especially as it goes on, more exaggerated or stylized movements and, and, and performances. You get a lot of um, Mr. Jason Schwartzman's face. Yes. A lot of it. Yeah, but 
And it's a great face. I One mm. of the things that I love about Rushmore is Jason Schwartzman, and this was his first at least major film, and his face is so perfect for the character of Max because everything about it reads exactly who Max is. It's this kid that thinks more highly of himself, but really it's a defense mechanism, and he's thinking more highly of himself to put on this air of, I belong. Right. I'm, I'm a part of your world, rich people, and, mm. and I belong here. And just, man, everything about his face is so punchable that it, it, it just it, it reads into to all of it. One of the things that stood out to me was how short it was, actually. Yeah, it's a lean flick. In this modern world of two and a half hour to sometimes four hour <laughs> movies, we all know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. It's only an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. That's the size of like the average DC animated movie. Yep. But there's so much to it. There's There's so much packed in. There's so much character. And you get... This is something, and and you and I have already talked about this kind of before we're recording. But there's this this thing in filmmaking where there's that there's an economy of filmmaking, right. and it's how efficient you are at packing a lot into a little. And one of the things you can have a, a very slow movie, but one of the things that will make that slow movie engaging is if there's a lot packed into the frame. If you're getting a lot of visual cues and audio cues and performance cues, and it can be a very quiet slow moment, and your brain can be going insane because there's so much. This is by no means, it's not a quiet film or a boring film, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it has a really good economy there where it packs so much into every little bit and every little performance and and sometimes every little line of dialogue. Right. And it also, it doubles as um, making it so that it doesn't feel like there's a lot, even though there is. So rewatching just makes it all the better. Uh, This is a movie I watched literally every year at least one time really and sometimes it's it's in my top five movies of all time it's one of those movies i will go to when i'm a very in a certain mood or i need some sort of mood boost or i just need to feel like you know what uh life is not great right now but it's going to be okay this is kind of the ultimate coming of age it's going to be all right it doesn't look all right and it doesn't make sense right now but it's going to work out and you're going to learn something here I didn't think about it until really just now. Okay. But whenever he goes to the public school mm-hmm. and he's trying to do all these ritual things, mm. you know, this this him going to public school rec- represents his chance to really become himself, mm-hmm. but he still denies it because he still feels like that's who he's supposed to be. He just doesn't get it yet. Especially, and I love the scene where he's... um trying to practice fencing in the basketball court and, all, <laughs> and the basketball players don't even care. They just run up beside them and keep doing their thing. And that, even that little thing can be representative of how nobody there cares about his rich attitude. Yeah. And that's, you see it at Rushmore too, but he has this, this group of kids that see him as important and that's good enough for him because he feels important. He's got a group of kids that view him as important and that's throughout this entire film, everything falls apart on him. And as as far as teen experience goes, at the time, that's what registered as so authentic to me. It broke through all the quirkiness. It broke through all of the uh, the style. And it was really this movie about a kid who gets smacked in the face with life and gets pushed as low as teenage you know, life tends to go in a, in a normal teenage life, I guess you could say. And then he has to 
learn how to rely on other people and and work his way back out of that. And as someone fresh out of high school, uh-huh. knowing all those dumb social things, it really, I really, honestly, I hate to say this because he's a huge jerk, but <laughs> he really I can is. relate to him. Yeah. Yeah. But only after like halfway through and every starting to realize he's not all that. Yeah. And I, I don't think he's genuinely a jerk. I think he's just oblivious to his impact on other people. His, his world is, he's still in that social kind of selfish construct where mm-hmm. I'm the center of the universe. And a lot of the movie is him learning, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. And there's there's rejection. And there are things that will not come my way that I want. And things are not going to work out for me. And uh, ultimately, maybe this is overthinking it. I don't think so. But you're dealing with a kid that lost his mom at a very young age. And over the course of the movie, that's really what's driving him. It's It's this utter denial that things in his life are out of his control and he has to be broken down. And and part of Mm. that I would imagine is a defense mechanism from I lost mom and life isn't fair and this is not the way it's supposed to be. Well, I'm going to take control and I'm going to make it the way I want it to be. You, you really do love this movie. uh, You've thought so much about it. It's, but when you watch a movie, seriously, this movie has probably been watched by me a solid, at least more than 50 times. Oh, my God. Uh, but, you know, I've been watching it for, for 24 years now. Uh, and I just, I constantly come back to it. And I'm always finding something new. And then you you dive into, here's, here's a kid with real talent uh, that doesn't know how to be talented in other things because he doesn't care about other things. It's not that he's not capable of being an academic scholar. It's that he does not care about those things. Those things are not what got him to where he's at or what make him feel special. Uh, and so, you know, those those are uh, just unnecessary and trivial to him. I did think it was perfectly ironic that he's a horrible scholar, we'll say. Yeah. You know, he's good with all the clubs and social stuff, but he's horrible at socializing. Yes. So horrible. Yeah. I remember genuinely feeling myself tense up whenever he was doing these so awkward, like whenever he's on the bleachers with um, Miss Miss Cross, Miss Cross, mm-hmm. and he was just going back and forth. I hated that so much yep. because it's so so awkward. Yeah, there's you're supposed to feel that. You're supposed to feel her increasing awkwardness where she's starting to realize. Uh, this kid is starting to fall in love with me. And that's going back to that economy of filmmaking. Everything there is so visual. It's him appearing from nowhere with the lemonade and appearing from nowhere with the red <laughs> pen and walking across and sitting next to her and then leaving and then coming back. It's he's, he's so foreign to the adult world. He so desperately thinks he is ready for uh, you know, these adult conflicts and relationships and things like that. But everything he does, the minute he steps up to try to be an adult, he ends up doing it in a very childish way. Right. He writes him... uh, an amazing play and then gets punched in the face because all he cares about is that the teen actor didn't say the lines correctly. <laughs> you know, it's it's things like that where he's just being literally smacked in the face with, with reality and how you treat people. And then him trying and failing to be an adult ends up getting him expelled and losing everything that he's yep. working so hard for. And he realizes he gets humbled and he gets humbled perfectly. Now, here's a fun question. Do you think, so credits roll, uh, let's say a Rushmore sequel exists. Does he actually humble up? 
is this is this one of those things where he has learned an important lesson but now comes the difficult process of growing out of that and the reality of growing out of that after learning a lesson or do you think this is really by the end he is a a changed human being i don't think he's a changed human but i think the qualities he had before are changed I think a portion of him was changed, but I think mm-hmm. there's still plenty of immaturity for him to get through. Yeah. So in a sequel, personally, I wouldn't like him to backtrack at all. Like that part of his development, it's over. He's a new person. Doesn't need you know? Rushmore anymore, right? Per se. Right. Yeah. He's, he's humble, but now there's something else that he's got to deal with. Yeah. Maybe what it's like to live a humble life. I don't know. Yeah. And that's I I think that's. The best movies to me are the ones that just keep your brain clicking after the right. end. I don't actually want a Rushmore sequel. It would be the worst right. thing in the <laughs> right. world to me because it's such a a perfect no little uh, you know one-off movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that I want a sequel, but it's a film that leaves me. Uh, you know, uh, does uh, does Bill Murray and and um, and Miss Cross stay together. You know, does do these characters actually succeed in love? Does Max actually make it with Margaret? Does you know? Does he have some more connection to his father? It's it's those sorts of things after a movie that continue to bring you back to it because you really start to to understand that you have genuine affection for these characters as people. And uh, wish you had more time in their life or to learn more about them. And I almost think, I don't know much about Wes Anderson, Mm -hmm. obviously, but I almost feel like he just had a character in mind and he, he made the characters first. And then he made these situations that this character goes through and however the characters would react. Like it's almost, it's not as much, um, he goes through this development because the plot needs him to. This feels natural he is a person and he's doing dumb person things and even the way characters react to him react to his dumb person things they don't just come out of a vacuum because plot needs to plot (laughs) it's it's a very you know max has has decided on behavior a behavior a has consequences and here's how each character reacts to those consequences and that's I, that's what the headmaster exists for. He exists to be <laughs> the source of reaction to Max's immaturity. And I feel like that's a big issue recently, say, last 15 or 20 years. I don't know if it's that far back, okay. but plot existing because it needs to be mm-hmm. plot. And that's a common criticism that you hear in a lot of reviews of current movies. Um, and it's it's a nitpicky thing. But if there's enough of it, it's a real huge issue. Well, and a lot of people get into this mode where they think that films were much better once upon a year. Right. But that's not actually what's happening. Mm, no. You're benefiting from any time you go, let's say, from 2000 and before. There were tons of movies that were absolute garbage and that you know exposited too much and just were poorly written and all these things. They did. They barely made it to DVD, much less Blu-ray. They don't really exist in an easy-to-grab fashion. It's the good art that continues to persevere, even if it's just out of nostalgia. Right. The things that you have access to, the further back you go, are the cream of the crop. These people are thinking of this handful of movies that existed over the course of 30 years. Mm-hmm. These, you know, incredible hits, but not all the... 
messy stuff in between. Yeah, and there's just and it's always been that way. It's not new to film. That's even if you go back through literature uh, or ancient texts or things like that, tons of writing, but it wasn't good, and so it just doesn't survive the the centuries and it disappears and so what you're left with is the Shakespeare and the Chaucer and the yeah there was a bunch of you know subpar Shakespeare's all over London and they were terrible and their plays just have not survived and, uh, you know it's it's not that somehow it was a, an age of enlightened artistry uh, it's just it's been refined in the years since looking at it from what you just said mm -hmm. I have nothing wrong with kind of bad movies mm -hmm. sometimes because at least they're original. Yeah. You can do the same MCU movie yeah. 20 times, which they kind of have with some variation in between. But even if, even if there's some stuff that just doesn't work, at least they tried to do something original. Yeah. And I can always appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and that's the benefit to bringing new filmmakers in. And that's, it's interesting when you look at somebody like Wes Anderson, because he gets accused a lot of just being obsessed with his own style. And, and Clint and I talked about that last obsessed episode. But style. Just where his his style, it, it gets to a point, there is no denying the second it comes on the screen, this is a Wes Anderson film. Right. You can tell in a heartbeat. And I think that offends people as if they walked what? into a museum and looked at Picasso's and they would be offended that Picasso has a style. It's <laughs> silly. Um, but Wes Anderson really invents. He has a style, yes, but it's just the framework. It's not a formula. It's a framework to how he wants to tell a story. Or he uses a lot of the same actors over and over and over again as different characters. It, it's, it's something where it's almost like uh, he's he's almost like an old playwright where he has a troop of actors and they have a box of props and it just sort of this this stage play kind of thing gets recycled over and over again, but it in a lot of ways forces him to be really inventive and to do new things or to tackle a new genre, but through his style. And see, I don't, I think I heard this a while ago, how creativity isn't really having the freedom to do anything as much as it's being backed into a corner and having to think really hard about how to get out of that corner. And that's where you have a moment of genius. Have you ever seen Breaking Bad? No. Breaking Bad, the showrunner and head writer is a guy named Vince Gilligan. And Vince Gilligan did something with Breaking Bad and he talked about it a lot and a lot of shows have, have done it since. And not that he originated it, but they would just write the season and they would very intentionally write themselves into a corner by the end of the season. And they would have no idea how they were going so to get out of the corner. Smart. And then while they're blocking and prepping everything for the next season, the first thing they have to do is write themselves out of an impossible situation. Okay, we left it on this cliffhanger or we left our characters in this situation. I don't know how to get them out of this. And what it did every season was it forced them to essentially replot and reconsider. And as a result, the characters grew and the story grew and it went in surprising ways. So and cool. just like it's surprising you, the viewer, it's surprising them in the writer's room too. Now I need to watch Breaking Bad. It's fantastic. <laughs> but great, great filmmakers do the exact same thing. Great filmmakers from scene to scene or, or act to act, they really... It's it's not about knowing where you're going necessarily. Sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. But but you were talking about Wes Anderson seeing a character. I When you read interviews with him and things like that, that's very much how his process works. Really? He and his co-writers. They 
they essentially come up with characters and then uh, let's say you come up with a Max Fisher. Okay, here's the Max Fisher type. What is it that challenges that character? What kind of organic uh, people in his life would challenge whatever his his kind of base nature is and then what's the story that revolves around that and maybe they have a hook okay it's a kid at a prep school that's not a good student but he's uh you know into all the clubs and and all of these things or maybe it's semi-autobiographical from from his childhood but the idea is uh you can really feel it when you get to act three where it's just like let's throw him at public school mm-hmm Let's not keep him at Rushmore and keep writing that way. Let's really continue to strip him down and take him to a place that he really has to reevaluate life. And so, you know, you think, what did Disney say about Ray when they were making her? What what challenges her? Nothing. Yep. Nothing challenges Ray. Yeah. And that's it, it in episode seven of Star Wars. It does challenge her because they lay out all of this. Who are you and what's your past and who are your parents? There's enormous meat there to go through. And even in episode eight, they latch onto that like, okay, what if she's nobody? Those are really interesting concepts, right. but you can feel that they mm-hmm. didn't quite know what they wanted to do. In that case, they didn't have an end game. They didn't know where they wanted to take her. Or maybe as they're developing her, they just don't they don't know what to do with it. And so they throw random space fights, lightsaber fights. Right. Let's just throw everything in the mix and see what happens. And some movies are character substance and sure. some are just fun to watch and there's nothing wrong with either of those it's whatever yeah. you like yeah but personally i prefer characters yeah. something that feels real even if it's set in a sci-fi or way back when uh, setting as long as the characters just feel like they can have some meaning to me and to the people around them i am set to enjoy something and i really do love Rushmore like it was a seriously great experience and that's where the plot for plot sakes really does a film a disservice because if you don't care about Max regardless of if he's a jerk or not if you don't care about Miss Cross and how she's reacting if you don't care about man is is it Mr. Bloom or what is Bill Murray's name in that anyway uh, I should 100% know that as many times I've watched this you really should but if you don't care about these people you don't invest in them and if you don't invest in them you can have the best story the best plot and it means nothing and the the best films the one that really lasts and especially ones like Rushmore that Honestly, for me, this is a very timeless film. This is not a film that ages for me because it's not about 1998. Mm -mm. It is about Max Fisher. And it's about really at the heart of it, this teenager who is discovering what life really is and having to decide if he's going to let it defeat him or if he's going to find a way to work up through it. And you could honestly, I can almost say in 200 years, someone just taking this movie, doing the exact same thing, just changing it to that futuristic school and it's just it's the same movie yeah with a different color yeah and that's even years from now if you look back at this one it still has those very universal human themes but it also provides a a kind of a a a glimpse back into what culture was at the time and you see that with a lot of coming of age stories when you go back to the 70s or 80s which i know you haven't seen a lot of that but things like the breakfast club and the john hughes movies uh, they they don't age well necessarily because they're based in the 70s and 80s they're Mm. based in a time when socially we were very different 
and in some ways we were backwards or, or we weren't where we should be yet. If you go back to you know the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you find a lot of racially insensitive material right. in movies. But it, it even so, it gives you this glimpse into what that culture, those humans are dealing with at the time. And so that that's almost disappointing because there are some great commentary, quote unquote commentaries of uh, say how society is mm-hmm. right now. And those just won't really mean anything to the future audiences. No. And, and that's, um, it's funny because when we talk about things that are offensive, it's always interesting to me, the idea of censoring things or blotting things out that are no longer culturally relevant or right. that offend our cultural sensibilities because the only reason we've developed those sensibilities is because we came from a place where there was something that bothered us. Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, which is a Quentin Tarantino movie that you will definitely be watching in the course <laughs> of this series, uh, it's it's a great movie. It, it is a, a near-perfect movie. Really? But... Clint and I were talking, and one of the things that drives me nuts is right in the middle of it is a scene, and you'll know it when you get to it, where the director plays this character named Jimmy, and Quentin Tarantino is very white, and he's standing there in front of Samuel L. Jackson, who's playing an assassin, and they're friends, but he's, Quentin Tarantino's character, Jimmy, is just liberally dropping the N-bomb. Oh my. And it does not age well at all. No. It feels so out of place. And even back in the 90s, it felt a little out of place. But now it especially just feels like, oh, this scene has not aged well. I'm not even sure I'd feel comfortable watching that because I've just been taught to be so, so sensitive to mm -hmm. that because other people are sensitive to that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's just how it is. But it's one of those things. If you completely erase every movie that has ever, you know, come before those sensibilities or those sensitivities Mm -hmm. then you lose track of why we've gotten to the place we've gotten to you need to have art presented to you as it was so that you understand where culture was so that you can actually look at culture today and determine if we have moved the bar or if we're still struggling with some key things and it's almost no different from say the government um trying to delete some yep. massacre that happened say in vietnam yeah. or something yeah and, and I'm, I'm not trying to compare people who get sensitive to hitler but it's, no. it's one of those the nazis <laughs> one of the things and it's not just the nazis other other leaders and and uh you know dictators and things like that and military leaders have burned art they've burned books and they're trying to erase something in culture they don't like and that's it's it's very dangerous to start down that road because the minute any of us start selecting what has value or, or doesn't have value to the point that it can be erased or preserved is a very dangerous place because you can get to a place in, as a society where you have all this stuff and you've come so far, but you have no idea what got you there. Right. And then you can repeat the same things that you've grown through. Exactly. And see, that's kind of, see, that's interesting because something that I've observed is there's just a cycle of issues mm-hmm. that happens throughout history. And yep. so I'm wondering now that we've come into this last hundred years or so, now that information is so widely available, mm-hmm. will we really ever repeat those mistakes again? Because it will always be able to be brought up from now on. There will never be a point, I mean, unless the world ends and we lose internet, there will never be a point where people can't say, hey, here's the shooting that happened in 2014, 30 years from now. But take, we were really off course, but I love it. Right. <laughs> take school shootings, for example. When Columbine happened back in the 90s, 
uh, maybe that was early 2000s, but I think it was the late 90s. That was a big deal. Mm -hmm. There's a school shooting. This was news everywhere. It was talked about for years. It was this cultural shift. Now, happens all the time, and, mm -hmm. and we don't even talk about it. You don't even hear about it on the news. So it it, it also has the ability when, when you become kind of saturated with something or, or just sort of indifferent. Indifference is one of the most offensive things in all of culture. <laughs> when you become indifferent to somebody else's suffering, it just creates a scenario where – now you totally can repeat, even though you have access to all that information. At any point, you can go on Google and pull up exactly what's happening with school shootings or things like that. I don't care. You know? Exactly. Happening all the time. What difference does it make now? Exactly. It's just it's just exposure. Just people get used to things. That's, yep. Wow. I and and that's that. why. So you have a film like Rushmore. I really think the reason it continues to resonate, and I'm so glad you enjoyed it and I'm not crazy. It. And it's not just a product of my you know, teenage years that this movie continues to be great. I I think the thing that, that makes art survive is that it, it taps in and it asks those kind of questions. And I think above everything, Rushmore gives you a group of characters and says, what is it about their life that matters? What doesn't matter? What are they learning? What are they suffering? What are they struggling with? It's love and it's acceptance and it's rejection. Mm. And those things will always exist. And it's cartoonish. Sure. And it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But it just looks like you're taking a camera lens into someone's life. Mm -hmm. Really. Like, it's, it's just so, it's so raw. That's the thing with Wes Anderson. No matter how far he goes with his movies or how stylized they are, he's even done two complete stop-motion animation films. Really? And they're just as good as his live-action <laughs> films. Uh, his one, he did Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's about all these little uh, creatures, uh, like a fox and a badger and all this. It's your typical kids thing, but it's done as a serious adult Wes Anderson movie, even though it's stop motion animated, he took the main actors, George Clooney and Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman out into a field and they recorded all the dialogue and act out everything. And then they animated it. And see, and that's genius to me because those animals feel like real adults. I love it. With real problems. In a Hollywood full of systems and just knowing what works after mm -hmm. hundreds of years of not hundreds, but a hundred years or so of knowing movies he built it from the ground up. Yep. These movies and just defining your own processes yep. is, is I think, I mean, the best way to do it. And you I have think, a system if you want money. You yep. build it from the ground up if you want art. And that's something you can look at somebody like Michael Bay who made the Transformers movies and has been making <laughs> movies for a long time. And you can absolutely, I can watch a Michael Bay movie and in five minutes say, this is a Michael Bay movie. Mm -hmm. He has a very distinct style. But what does that style say? Explosions. What does it mean? Boom. He knows how to film explosions and people that look tan. That's really... <laughs> and very sweaty and it all is, the time. Zack Snyder is another one. He has a very specific visual style. But what does it contribute to the actual character of the film? And I think that's where people struggle with Zack Snyder f films. Because, yes, they look good. And they're polished. And they, they're, you know, just paintings come to life. Right. But... Where are the people in them? And then when you look for that, you start to notice, wow, the screenplay here is not really good. Or the, you know, this or that's not really good. Or the characters really don't make me feel much. They look great, but they don't make me feel anything. Can I be honest? Oh, yeah. You might hate me here for a second. That's okay. I kind of like Batman Superman. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't, 
love it, mm-hmm. but it's I liked it as much as I liked Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, it's just. I'm nice I'm interested over the course of you over the next couple of years starting to refine your palate. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to me when I go back and watch movies that I really liked when I was younger. Sometimes they hold up Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Other times I will go back to something and as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, my memory of this movie is so different from what the movie actually is. And that's those are the moments where I realize how far my tastes have have developed and, and how much they've refined over the years, not snotty refined, just genuinely the more movies you watch, the, the, I guess the more selective you become, but the, mm. the more critical eye you have, not in a bad way, just, you just know more, you know more and you start to really appreciate when something is done well and you can spot when something is, is like 80 other things. Right. And see, that's always interesting to think about because did it not age well to your uh, current understanding of the right. world or the current understanding of yourself. That's yep. you take a six year old to a transformers movie and like, this is the greatest movie in the world. <laughs> yeah. Because you haven't seen a lot of movies you in the world. You haven't seen Rushmore kid. Exactly. I'm going to take you and, to watch Rushmore. And until you get to a place where you've started to watch a lot of those movies, everything is the best movie in the world because it made you feel a certain way or it was fun or it was whatever. And it's almost disappointing mm-hmm. because, because you just, you stop liking stuff. Yeah. Your yeah. brain gets smart, but your feelings get dumb. Yeah. Well, on that, let's shift into social network. Social Network is different than Rushmore. Rushmore deals with these universal uh, themes, but it it doesn't really go broad with the story itself. These are just people. Here's the situation, but you don't have to care about school. You know, people have been educated for forever. They'll continue to be educated. So you get the, the setup. Social Network is a very specific social commentary. It's a very specific cultural commentary about what's happening uh, you know, in mm-hmm. the the world of social media and this very specific real person, Mark Zuckerberg, here's this little slice of life about him. And it, it turns into a, how do you explore some universal human themes with a very, you know, early 21st century story? Because it, it's very specific to the time period that it's taking place. So generally, mm-hmm. I liked the social network. Okay. I don't think I loved it. Okay, really? I thought um, maybe I just turned my brain off for it. Okay. But it didn't feel like there was a lot underneath as there was, as much as there was on top. Mm-hmm. So you saw a lot of things happening. But see, the thing is, I feel like that's in part because it's in it's sort of a documentary. I mean, it's almost... Exactly. I mean, there are a few things that are just a little tweaked or different to make characters seem more antagonistic mm-hmm. or more personable. Um, but overall, I, I just, I, I think it's because they, we only see the outside of these characters. And and I think that's interesting because that's Mark Zuckerberg continues to be a very external human being. 
it is difficult to understand what happens in his mind. Oh, yeah. Even when you see him, especially when you see him making statements about Facebook or controversies, he really he's an alien. He comes across as, as an alien or a robot or it just there's there's something, something about his face. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's difficult to read. Definitely. And it really Definitely. comes across like there's not much going on there. It's it, I've and, met people who are hard to read, but you still feel the mm-hmm. emotion or the conflict or whatever going on and, underneath. And honestly, I feel like Jesse Eisenberg did a better job playing Zuckerberg than Zuckerberg <laughs> does. Zuckerberg. Because Jesse Eisenberg, even as much as he's playing this emotionless, factual, objective character, yeah. you can still see his facial expressions. And you can still see him during... Um, Whenever him and uh, Andrew Garfield are at that table mm-hmm. in the future, he's getting upset about things. He has this sort of, uh, I don't even know what to describe it as, but it's just a sad face. There's a sadness beneath the coldness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I watch real Mark Zuckerberg, I don't see the emotion no. under it. He's just a, a, a weird, cold automaton <laughs> that, that laughs. Uh, Saturday Night Live does a great impression of him. And, and it's the same thing where I feel like this Mark Zuckerberg on SNL is more humanized than real Mark Zuckerberg. Wow. Um, it's, you know, I, I hate to go in there and just kind of tear apart somebody's yeah. <laughs> entire personality, but he's a weird dude. He really is. And th- but that's the thing. So social network, uh, you know, is it something where you can fall for a character and engage with a character like Mark Zuckerberg? the way you would a Max Fisher. I don't know if that's possible. And I don't know if the movie would work as well if it gave you the feeling that there was a lot to connect to and understand. It's tough making based off true events movies because Mm -hmm. of that. You want to keep it accurate to stop misinformation, but you also want to make a decent movie. And one thing about that is they also do that really well they don't change as much as they just pick and choose pieces of his life to sort of highlight who he is yeah structurally this film is is very well done because it gives you a framework of this lawsuit and then through flashbacks it gives you pertinent pieces of that lawsuit but really it's giving you pertinent pieces of zuckerberg's life and his friendships his relationships the things that that kind of fall apart and uh Andrew Garfield's Eduardo mm-hmm. in any other movie would be the protagonist of the social network. Absolutely. And Mark Zuckerberg would be a side character because Eduardo is the the engaging human. He's the one that's going through stuff. He's the one that has the growth. He's the one that gets betrayed. He's the that's the interesting character. Mm. Uh, Eduardo is the the Jesus of the story. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg's the Judas. And who wants to spend a whole movie following Judas? You you want to know more about the guy who's who's feeling and emoting mm. and unfortunately uh, going through stuff. Eduardo isn't famous. No, no. And honestly, it's interesting. I I would like a movie about both of them. Yeah, not yeah. both of them at the same time. But you know, one individually. Yeah. It's um, it's um because I don't know. Does I, I didn't pick up on much development from Zuckerberg there. There's not. He he is he's the same at the beginning. As he is at the end, really, that entire movie comes down to that last line uh, that um, uh, that the the assistant attorney says to him, where you're you're trying so hard to be this thing, but you're not. The assistant That's, attorney, she is an angel from God sent to tell yes. him exactly what's wrong with him. Yep, and that's it. In a way, it's it's this whole morality play where you're you're seeing this human being. 
and I would be, I've never heard of somebody coming away from the social network like, man, I, I really, I feel for Mark Zuckerberg. Man. <laughs> you don't, he's a jerk. Yeah. I, I feel like I come away understanding the screenwriter Aaron Sorkin's version of Mark Zuckerberg, right. but I don't like him. No. I just understand what drives him. Yeah. Whatever it is, there's some wounded animal inside that he's completely covered up and he wants to be this cold calculating thing, but he's not. Okay. Yeah. I love that for the movie, but then hop over mm. to, it's not like a, a biopic that you're watching about somebody that lived years ago or has died since. This is somebody that we can watch online or, or on TV anytime he does an interview. On Facebook? Uh, he smiles or, with his mouth. Yes, he does. Not anything his else eyes? on his face. <laughs> yeah, just, ah. Well, you know, they can only move one Android part at a time. <laughs> just not that advanced yet. No, no. Um, <laughs> his wouldn't it be crazy if he was sitting there doing an interview and just a piece of him fell off <laughs> and there's this awkward like computerized pause of now what do I do <laughs> like whoops so so when you're watching this because this is probably one of the first Aaron Sorkin movies you've seen probably it's directed by David Fincher and David Fincher has a very specific style we'll get to that but Aaron Sorkin also has a very specific style he has a machine gun dialogue style where he puts a lot of words uh, coming out of somebody's mouth very quickly and everybody is hyper intelligent. There's not a single character in an Aaron Sorkin movie that is not hyper intelligent and able to access exactly what they want to say. The pithiest, most witty thing they can possibly come up with in the moment. And the only time they show any lack of wit is when they need to fall to a wittier character. I haven't even noticed that. Mm-hmm. That's Sorkin gets a lot of criticism sometimes for writing characters as the same person. Hmm. Um, you'll notice in social network and I love the social network, but you'll notice it, he falls into that habit sometimes where Mark Zuckerberg will be and then the girl he happens to be on a date with does the exact same thing back when she dresses him down at the beginning. The Winklevoss twins do that until they need to look foolish. And then suddenly, oh, yeah. when they're complaining to the headmaster, da, 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 da. but now they need to look foolish, and now the headmaster is. Da, 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 and that's da. interesting that he gets criticism about that because who doesn't try to sound smarter in person? Everybody tries to sound smart, but in an Aaron Sorkin movie, you are smart. As oh, long okay. as in the moment, you need to prevail. And that's where it goes but are the to. They're really smart. Because thinking about them they're in not. the office, they're not. They're intelligent, but they don't have any street smarts. They don't have uh, business acumen uh, in the movie anyway. In the movie, they're presented as idea people who don't know how to execute. The whole time, Mark Zuckerberg is the smartest. Mm -hmm. He is absolutely intelligent, even nope. over um, what was uh, Justin Timberlake's? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Napster. Um, oh, what's his name? I don't remember. Anyway. Uh -oh. Anyways, <laughs> that dude, he's even and honestly, that guy doesn't talk very fast either. I don't think. He's, he's pretty, not slow, but he's average talking speed for most of the time. No, because remember, even when, he, when you first meet him and he wakes up with the girl at the college dorm, he's already just coming out of sleep and already dropping one-liners and being the wittiest thing in the room. And then he rolls in when he first yeah. meets Eduardo and Mark, and he's, he's all one-liners and pithy comments and paying the check sure, and but I all don't that think, stuff. I don't think he's on the same level as Jesse Eisenberg playing Jesse Eisenberg. No. Jesse Eisenberg, <laughs> yeah. Mark Zuckerberg in this movie is always the smartest person in the room. 
He may be an awful human being, absolutely, but he absolutely owns everybody intellectually. And it's um, it's interesting because it almost a little bit reminds me of Infinity War of all things, where you're following sort of the villain the whole time. Yeah. This dude's sly. He's a jerk. He uses pretty much everybody he ever knows. Yeah. And at what cost? The end. He's alone. Yeah. And it's sad. And I like that. I like that it has this realistic, bittersweet tone to it. Mm-hmm. Sure, like the characters are always witty and smart and stuff, but everything else, it it just feels, I don't know if visceral is the right word, but mm-hmm. it feels like you're in there with them. So you're just watching, you know? David Fincher, the director, and he's definitely one that will pop up more and you'll be watching some movies. Next week, you're going to have a Fincher movie. I'll tell you about that here in a little bit. Okay. But Fincher is the anti-Wes Anderson. If you put Wes Anderson and Fincher and plotted them on some sort of director scale, I don't even know what that scale is, but they would be the two extremes. <laughs> Fincher is the the dark, cynical, here is the underside of humanity. Just here how it is happened. Yep. Just how it happened. Here is, here is how people really are. Let me show you how ugly it is. Um, He's the dad that's trying to teach you what the real world's like. Exactly. I love that. And Wes Anderson is trying to show you what he wishes the world was. He's the dad that has hope that encourages you to achieve your dreams, yep. however unlikely. And so when you go into it understanding that, here you have two directors with two very different worldviews. And worldview is really important when it comes to directors because you start to pick up on how someone processes how they think. And it comes out in their style. Fincher is even down to the cinematography. If you look at Rushmore versus Social Network, everything in Social Network is a near colorless, joyless uh, almost emotionless affair. It, it builds a world that reflects Mark Zuckerberg. Whereas Rushmore and especially later Wes Anderson movies so are colorful. full of colorful, so colorful. or full of color and full, full of, of life. Sure. It's full of colorful, full of color and full of life and all of these things because stylistically they're doing the same thing visually that they're doing thematically or that they're doing through the writing. And that's why you take somebody like an Aaron Sorkin who machine gun styles his dialogue and somebody that's more cynical and dark like a David Fincher and you pair those two together, now all of a sudden you have the ability to tackle a character like a Mark Zuckerberg because that's what he is. He is this this weird shell of a man that's hyper-intelligent. And that movie presents him perfectly to me as a weird shell of a man that's hyper-intelligent. And only at the end does, does she point out, and you see a little bit of it, in Eisenberg's performance, but at the end, she really kind of smacks the nail on the head of, I know you're a human in there somewhere. Why are you so desperate to make people think you aren't? There's obviously some big mommy issues or something. And that's that's so interesting. Something, because what's interesting, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but these two movies, if you kind of think more about the details, there's a lot of similar stuff in them. Max Fisher and Mark Zuckerberg are kind of similar in how they have this whole shield of, say, pretentious, (laughs) you pretentious, you know, and um, they're better than everyone else. And they, they know it. And honestly, I mean, the difference there is Max Fisher really isn't. But um, it's interesting to me also that they can both have something that feels organic about people, but also be wildly different in tone. Here because you... they're two different. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I don't want to interrupt you. Because they're two different sides. Yep. Here you have two intellectual giants in each movie. 
that are really good at what they're good at and really terrible at what they're bad at. And both of them are faced with conflict and both of them have to determine if they're going to change as a human being. One changes and it just happens to be in the director's film, the, the director that believes in the best in people. And one does not change. One does not grow. And it's in the director who does not believe in the best of people, who believes that at our core, we're inherently bad somehow. And Wes Anderson believes at our core, somewhere in there, even the bad guys, we are inherently good and there are things we can do to be better. And personally, they're probably both right. They probably are because you're dealing with this wide swath of humanity. And so there's nothing wrong with a Fincher taking and using his artistic expression to explore that side of a very realistic side of humanity. And there's nothing wrong with Wes Anderson wildly different exploring that side of humanity because both things are the the people that you encounter every day. And so both films can have these universal themes that are similar but explore them in very different ways. Even if you look at the soundtrack, these are two scores and soundtracks that are completely different. So on the social network side, you've got um, the the guy from Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, and they've become uh, he and uh, I forget his partner, uh, his working partner's name, but they have uh, they've done quite a few movie scores. But their movie scores match exactly what Fincher's trying to do, and Sorkin matches exactly what Fincher's trying to do. And a lot of times what you'll find is that great films are these moments where all the pieces come together. And these are both auteurs, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, quote unquote, the, the idea that this is a filmmaker that has complete control over their film. Wes Anderson has complete control over the film from music to score to uh, dialogue to script to visuals. You know, you point out Wes Anderson, here's a character, what happens organically around them? Whereas Fincher, again, from the, the, the more cynical side of things, believes that here's an individual, how does the world affect them? How do situations affect them? They have very little autonomy or control. Things happen and they have to react to them and we get to watch how they react, but they don't actually have the ability to change. They are, for better or worse, they're, they're kind of stuck because they're, they're in this. Uh, maybe they got it too easy. Maybe, uh, you know, Zuckerberg, that's another interesting thing you get introduced to. And the most backstory you get about Zuckerberg is when you see him on a date with a girl at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. You get nothing about his childhood. You get nothing about his parents, nothing about what made him the way he is. You drop in on this guy in college and go from there. Whereas Rushmore, you get all of these beats of, here's what happened with his mom, and here's where he is with his dad, and here's how he grew up, and oh, he got this scholarship to the school when he was very, very young. And you get all of these kind of key pieces sprinkled right. throughout, you don't need them in flashback, but you get a greater understanding of what made Max Fisher Max Fisher. I don't have any understanding after the <laughs> social network. Much as I love it, I have no understanding of what made Mark Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg. You don't even know why he got into college. No, no. You don't even know what he wanted to do. Uh, for all you know, he was just going to college and just happened to latch on to this idea that the Winklevosses had. You have no idea. It's it's never oh defined. God. That's so weird. It's very so weird. weird. But that's but where... You're, it's so good because structurally it's so well made, but you're never going to come to 
the social network and have the same emotional reaction mm -hmm, no. that you have to Rushmore. But Rushmore is telling an emotional story. And social network is telling an emotionless story. It's honestly, do you think if you watched the social network in a black and white tone, if that would enhance your experience of the social network? Because if you watched Wes Anderson's mm -hmm. uh, Rushmore in that, it would just be like, oh, there's a great tone over it. But I think so. Let's say you do both movies in black and white. Mm -hmm. I think you could still tell that Rushmore is a colorful film and that social network is not. Huh. Think about so, it, because even in the design of everything, it's kindergarten classes and it's fields and it's it's a busy factory and it's a, a bustling school and then a public school. And just everything about the art design suggests these are colorful, lively locations. So you don't think it would change the feeling of them at all? I don't. I, I still – well, it would change the feeling overall. The tone, the feeling. But, you know. but I think Social Network would still feel very, very cold. And Rushmore would still feel very, very warm uh, because you just sort of – you project – if you have warm characters that you care about and you're invested in, you see their world is more vibrant. And that is something interesting too. You mentioned the fields mm -hmm. in the kindergarten class. How much time do we spend outside in the social network? Every time in the social network you go outside, it's winter and it's it's the the rowing teams uh, and you see the cold breath coming out of their mouth. You see Mark walking uh, from building to building late at night at college, and it's dark, and it's only illuminated by the yellow the lights. And it's very, and, and it's you see his breath. You see all of the cold. Um, and that, oh my gosh, that intro scene of him just walking. Yeah. It's so interesting. I couldn't get that scene initially, mm -hmm. but thinking about it more, it's very much just, it's, it's so subtle. It's yeah. setting the tone. Yeah. Well, and that's something, just... one of the things you'll learn as you watch more of these movies, and we'll be doing a lot of this from week to week, contrasts, where there are similarities between movies, but they're really contrasting different things. The more you know about a director, the more you know about the intention or the worldview when you're going into a movie, the more you understand what you're supposed to take to it and how you're supposed to experience it. You're never going to go to a Fincher film and walk away having enjoyed the people that you spent time with. You may have enjoyed the movie or been entertained by it, but you're never going to walk away like, that's a person I'd want to be friends with. Mm. You're always going to come away like, that was a really interesting dissection of the darker side of, of human nature. And it, interestingly enough, even though I think Mark Zuckerberg in that movie is as much of a cold jerk as um, Justin Timberlake's character that we can't remember the name of, mm -hmm. I still like his character less not zucker not um mark zuckerberg i don't like uh you like justin timberlake's character less yes sean I almost had parker it. sean parker thank you yeah but sean parker is somebody who is I, I don't ever feel like mark zuckerberg is lying to himself i feel like sean parker is sean parker is almost the max fisher <sighs> if max fisher had continued down that path it's exactly what Sean Parker is. Well, just... Whereas Zuckerberg is, he's just kind of stuck. He doesn't understand himself or know himself or have the ability to be self-aware enough in that movie to grow as a person. And I think that's ultimately the answer to the question at the end. Why do you continue to try to be this thing that you're not? It's because that's what he believes he is. It's not because he, because I think the whole movie Max Fisher knows better. Yeah. 
he totally know, and he's just yep. it, there's such conscious effort that he puts into being this pretentious schoolboy. Yep, that's who he wants and to be. You can even like I mean everything points to it, but you can see it on his face. Yeah, like you can you can always feel that he's maybe forcing a smile back down mm-hmm. or something like that to keep that stoic smart guy look. Yep. They're both characters that come up against the world and get hurt. And you can tell they're being actively hurt, but they take two very different paths. Uh, and again, going back to director worldview, uh, one path is very cynical. I'm just going to wall up and stay who I am and I'm going to forge ahead. And it makes sense for Zuckerberg because he continues to get success. There's even that line at the end where he's talking about this money, even if they win this lawsuit, it's nothing to me. It's a drop in the bucket. There's no actual consequence to Mark Zuckerberg. Real life, you look at him right now in front of Congress and all the stuff that's going on there with the Facebook whistleblower, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't care. He doesn't care if anything, <laughs> you know, who cares if they find out tomorrow that Facebook is this awful place that pushes political agendas and has made the world a worse place. He doesn't care. But Max Fisher has to care. He has to be faced with the fact that this stuff hurts me and I can't keep it down. I can't push it down. I think part of that is definitely because Max Fisher is also just naturally a more sensitive guy than Mark Zuckerberg is. They both want to be something, but Max Fisher at his core is a more genuine or not even, I mean, just looking at personality types, Enneagram and stuff like that. that. I don't want to go down that because I know you're super into Enneagrams. We'll end up talking about that. But, but Max Fisher is somebody who's discovering who he is. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg in social network is trying to discover who he is. He is trying to be a success. He's trying Mm -hmm. to make money. He, and he doesn't care who he steps on to get it. That's, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's entirely. And you have, you have things like Mark Zuckerberg really turns on and stabs Eduardo in the back. Well, Max, uh, Dirk stabs him right in the back, but Max Fisher's reaction to hurting Dirk is very, very different. There's this boyhood, we have a fight. And then there's this moment of forgiveness because both of them hate that they're mad at each other. But Mark, Eduardo's feeling it. Eduardo would probably forgive him if he turned it around. In that movie, he would, I think, take him back and work it out. Mark, I don't think, is capable of that. So, question, Mm -hmm. a bit different from that. Is this Andrew Garfield's first or anyone's first? I've never seen Justin Timberlake in a uh, movie before. That was a real shock to me. Oh, really? Justin Timberlake's a great actor. Really? Uh, He doesn't always pick the best scripts or the best movies, but he's an incredibly talented actor and, and comedian, too. Uh, SNL, he has some of the absolute best comedy sketches. I, I can't he's believe I just hilarious. ignored Justin Timberlake for years. He's he's kind of great. Up until this movie. Like, I listened yeah. to one of his songs sometimes, like, a yeah. few years ago. You'll see him popping back up at different times. There's a movie from the Coen brothers we're going to watch that has him in it. And he's in this, uh, it's, it's such a nuanced and subtle performance that's not Justin Timberlake at all, but... Uh, it's great. It's a movie called Inside Lewin Davis, but he's fantastic in that. I like Eduardo so much more. Yeah, yeah. I and even then, he's still kind of a, a jerk. Yeah, but not a, not nearly as much. And you, the entire time, the, they're very polar opposite. Oh yes. By the way, Eduardo is this very very sensitive guy, going yeah. by what he knows, just trying to you know get get something that he can settle with. Yeah. But Zuckerberg is just continuously ambitious and cold and calculating. And even then, even though you see that they're probably not good for each other, Mm -hmm. and even though Zuckerberg's 
like a jerk. And even though Eduardo deserves so much better, you're still rooting for them as yeah. friends. Yeah. Well, and that's so going forward, uh, the two movies you're going to watch for the next episode are uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, oh, yes. uh, which is uh, honestly, if I would have known you had never seen it, that would have been on this first episode. Uh, and the second movie is also by David Fincher, okay. uh, who did Social Network, and it's called Seven. And uh, okay. these are two very, very, very different, again, very stylized films in their own regard, very different worldviews, very different economy of storytelling and performance and things like that. But again, uh, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of contrast there. So I have heard of Scott Pilgrim mm -hmm. before, and I know a little bit about it. I've seen that one scene that you showed me. Okay. A few weeks ago, I know the general tone of it, but I know nothing about Seven. Okay. I don't want you to tell me anything about Seven. I, and honestly, I would I would really recommend. Uh, I've gotten into a good habit of not watching trailers. Right. Um, <laughs> if it's a new movie where I know what it's sort of going to be anyway, but especially with independent film and things like that, when I don't watch a trailer for something and just go in blind, it's so much more because interesting. Trailers reveal too much. Yeah. You, and, and even if they don't reveal too much, they give you certain expectations yes. as to what it's going to be, what the tone's going to be. And then the minute it's not that, your brain gets distracted. Although I do think if you're not sure if you want to watch a film yes i think watching the trailer is yeah. still better that way because honestly for a second whenever i was about to watch this rushmore movie i thought uh it's called rushmore and it's about this school kid i read in the description i guess i better check the trailer out and that convinced me okay i kind of see where this might be going yeah. now i'm interested and i don't think this trailer is revealing too much thing is anything new i was um with my friend and we were watching a trailer for this old horror movie, horror comedy. I forget what it's called, but no, it was called stitches. Have you heard of yeah. stitches? Yeah. I watched the trailer for that and it's two minutes long and it has these cards in between saying this clown is doing this and getting revenge and he's going to get his revenge. And it's just nothing to discover plot. in the movie. No, yeah. there's some, uh, eventually we'll talk about trailers. There's this one movie with Samuel Jackson, Kevin Spacey from the nineties oh. called the negotiator. And the trailer is classic because it literally goes from the beginning of the movie to the twist ending and shows you beat by beat everything that's going to happen in the movie. And no. it's a movie that's based on a twist. And they show it to you in the trailer. Really? And it's it's just a reviled trailer. So it's one of the worst trailers of all time. That brings me to this. Is there any movie that you think is improved by the trailer? Yes. Um, or movies? There, there are... There are even movies where the trailer, I think, is better than the movie. <laughs> you brought up Batman versus Superman. Most superhero movies. Man of Steel. Uh, go back and watch. It's a three-minute trailer. And I think it came out during a Comic-Con or something. It's an incredible trailer. One of the best trailers I've ever seen. I saw that trailer, and I was just like, I'm not even a big Superman fan. This is about to be the next Dark Knight. This is about to be the next just most amazing thing I've ever seen. And man, the steel's good, but it is not that trailer. That trailer was such a more interesting tease than what came out of it. And that's the other downside to trailers is sometimes they can really lead you to think this is going to blow my mind. And then it's, you know, and I probably would have liked man of steel more had I not seen that trailer. Knives out. Okay. You should not watch knives out without watching the trailers first. Really? Because the trailers only show the first act when it still looks like a basic detective yep. Sherlock Holmes movie. Yep. And so that enhances your experience yep. expecting it to be that. Yeah. And that's so 
so smart. Yeah. I, I really wish the MCU, and we're going to talk about Shang-Chi here pretty quickly, but <laughs> I, I really wish they had a role with their trailers where we do not show anything from the last act. And uh, from the last third of the film, like we're not going to show any of it. The big giant explosions or the big, you know, battle or not a minute of it because at least you're going to get to the end and have no idea what to expect. Now, I do appreciate that sometimes they will show you things, but then completely alter them to fool right, you. Yeah. The, the shot Infinity from War, the Infinity War trailer where Thanos only has, I think, two stones in the trailer. <laughs> and then in the scene in the movie, he's got four at that point. That brilliant but mcu they have to do brilliant. it sparingly because yeah. they're pumping out four movies a year yes and, so. and that's something where they're not changing the tone of the movie they're just hiding the plot you know some of the the, the right, plot yeah. points or the twists or because whatever people else. are going to try their damned hardest yep. to put it together months before the movie yep. comes out i remember all the hype coming up with infinity war all the theories of how it would go down yep. perfectly and it all made sense and it was nothing like none that. of them and yeah. it, that's what made, honestly that's where i think again the trailer enhances yeah. the movie yeah. spider-man homecoming great trailer and very wisely did not even hint at the idea that the vulture uh that michael keaton's character is the father to peter's love interest mm. uh liz genius because that is the most gut punch moment uh twist uh, of of any mcu movie because it's such a oh of course but oh no i did not see that coming <laughs> such and mixed it's just, feelings yeah yeah speaking of gut punches mm -hmm. there's plenty of those in shang chi yes so let's let's uh that's a good segue that's thank you good thank you i like that i'm usually the the segue king over here I thought but i give it a shot mine are really crappy sometimes but they work uh yeah let's let's shift into shang chi We, we both are, are kind of zealots when it comes to the MCU. We love the MCU. We, we are uh, willing to admit its faults. Um, yeah. I, I think Clint will enjoy the fact that he will not have to talk about the MCU as much. Did he watch Shang-Chi? If I have you around. No, he Good. did not. Because I told him. Good. You are not going no. to like this movie. Because he's going to be so disappointed. Yeah, every Not even disappointed because he, he wasn't even looking forward to it. But it's mm. one of those things where everything, well, every complaint he has about Marvel movies or superhero movies in general, this movie does. Exactly. So so let's let's start from the beginning of it. And Gladly. just kind of the plot, if you don't know already, Shang-Chi is about this kid in San Francisco, I believe. Mm. Uh, kid, he's like 24, named Sean, who you come to find out uh, has uh, been on the run for 10 years from his father, who just happens to be... Uh, quite the the super powered <laughs> evil supervillain. How old is he? Uh, who the supervillain? I think he's or the Mandarin. A thousand two hundred. Yeah, it's like a thousand or something. Um, Wing Wu, I think, is his his actual name. Wen Wu. Wen Wu. Thank Wu. you. Uh, but but Sean uh, and his friend get sort of pulled back into uh, this life of of the the kind of assassin league. And has to determine who he is as a person. It's it's fairly generic as a yeah. MCU character arc goes. 
Um, we went to see this in the theater. Anthony, when when the credits first rolled and we walked out of the theater, what were your initial thoughts about Shang-Chi? I was disappointed. Just like flatline, I was disappointed. It was cool. I'm disappointed. Really? Because okay. Because Shang-Chi, who knows about Shang-Chi before they see the movie? Yeah, it's true. Anybody? I mean, and I'm so sure there's some people out there I am, that just love them. Coming off of WandaVision, Falcon, uh, Loki, Loki. Uh, not as much Black Widow, but all these things that are very, very different. Uh, not Marvel Visions. Oh, the uh, the What If series. Marvel What If. Yeah. All this stuff that's just exploring such different different ideas than just mm-hmm. another superhero that you know is slightly powerful that punches things that want to destroy the world. Um, I'm expecting it to be something quite different. And the Chinese theme of it is so cool yeah. at first. And the first two parts of it, they're they're really cool. There's a lot of action. There's yeah. a lot, and there, there's there's cool action stuff. And it's, it's, at least. it's well choreographed. Mm-hmm. It's well shot. And that is and definitely a compliment I have. Yeah. Shaky. I mean, they're shaky camera, like they're running and things are exploding. Yeah, but in the actual just fights, yeah. in the actual fights, you get to see every single move that happens. I found out. I don't know if you've seen anything with Jackie Chan or Jackie Chan movies, uh, but Jackie Chan is a martial artist who, they're especially in the seventies, eighties, nineties, out of Hong Kong, had just amazing movies full of stunts and these crazy mm-hmm. fights. I've heard of and I've very, very environmentally based. A lot of just like grab whatever's near you and use it as part of the fight. Jackie Chan's stunt team or fight choreographers are the ones who did the action in Shang-Chi. That's so cool. And it really reads when you know that because Mm -hmm. it's a very on the fly. I'm using my environment. Uh, The scene when they're in the bus and there's that great, I don't know, seven minute fight sequence. And he's Mm -hmm. using the rails and he's using the seats and he's using the The people. And you get those comedy (laughs) beats. He's getting the, the people. That's that's very kind of a throwback to Jackie Chan martial arts and, and the classic Jackie Chan movies. And even it's funny, one of his powers, he's able to like control wind or something. And then he By literally end, picks guess. up the environment and uses it as a weapon. Yeah, yeah. His mother does yeah. too. Yeah, I I had a similar reaction to the third act of, of Shang-Chi. I wouldn't say it was disappointing overall because I think... I've gotten to a place where I realize that the first movie for a character is usually much more generic. The first Captain America movie was very generic. Even I love the first Iron Man movie. I still think it's the best Iron Man movie. It's one of the best in the MCU. But at its core, it's a very simple movie. It's a very effective movie, but it's very simple. It doesn't do a lot of exploring Tony or his world. It doesn't. There's there's some central conflict, and that's the conflict. He's got to grow up as a man child and he's got to kind of grab hold of his business and become a better person. Right. And I honestly, I get that. Yeah. Did you know that Iron Man 3 is my favorite Iron Man movie? Really? Yeah. See, I love Iron Man 3. People hate Iron Man 3. I will defend that movie all day long. I kind of wait. I kind of wish you hated it. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I everybody got I mad at the the Trevor twist, which <laughs> by the way, this movie the best thing it oh, does my goodness. is it makes all of the stuff that people complain about in Iron Man 3, worth it. And I think you cannot, after Shang-Chi, go back and complain about Iron Man 3 because together, they work so well together. Can I be honest, Kenny? Sure. I think one of the reasons why I was disappointed with this movie is because I saw Wong in the trailer. Yeah. And I went in for more Wong. Really? And I didn't get much Wong. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of Wong in there. No, but like actually, um, 
I feel like there's quite a few things that it starts to dip into and mm -hmm. then just forgets. Yeah. One thing was the sister. She hates him a bunch for the first act and then all of a sudden now halfway through, yeah, you know, let's fight together. I'm not going to maybe, you know, even something as simple as maybe like, I hate you so much, maybe I'll join my dad again. Yeah. And maybe that wouldn't have made much sense because she hates her dad. But it would have been something besides just ignoring the whole plot line of that. And then you like to mention the soul thing. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be talking about that here in a minute. Okay. Do you want me to go ahead and talk about no, that? No, we, we can okay. wait. Let's, let's talk about the third act because the first and second acts, and, and not sure if you knew, but typically uh, I would say even 98% of movies fall into a three-act structure. Sure. And there's the the setup, then the the conflict unpacking, and then sort of your your resolution at the end. And it's very rare that you find a movie that does more than three acts. But the the first two acts of this are great. They dip into Chinese legend and storytelling and and the idea of legacy and story. And it and really sets really well. up he does punch really well. It really sets up some some really good conflict, some really good ideas, and some really interesting concepts for kind of the you know uh, mystical slash martial arts side of the Marvel universe. But then in the third act, everything uh -huh. is suddenly boiled down to its most basic elements and it it does not pay off. Big dragon fight. Big dragon fight. Let's have a big dragon fight where there's a big bright eastern dragon or Chinese dragon and a big dark winged European yep. dragon just yep hidden each other. And the big dark European dragon has little minions that go and suck out people's <laughs> souls that are these little glowing balls of energy. So you know that a soul has come out of this person is being delivered to the big thing and it eats them and it but powers wait, up. But Kenny, do souls move on? Do That's, they stay? So now we have established in the MCU that there is a physical embodiment of a soul. What does that mean? What does that mean for somebody like Tony Stark who just died in Endgame? What what am I supposed to do with the fact that the MCU has now said definitively there is a soul that exists after it leaves a body? And um and like it was I know we don't like exposition mm -hmm. by dialogue much, but all it would take is them saying, "Oh no, they're getting their life essence." Yeah. Not yeah. their soul. And it's vague. I don't know what that means. It's, you know, whatever. But then even showing it. I, I told you after the movie, if, if this were me writing it, I would have done it where uh, the things, you know, suck in the life energy and then they fly up to Mama Beast and it just eats them. And then you still get the mm -hmm. power up, but you never get a sense of like, is it just consuming their energy? Is it consuming their souls? It, it just, it becomes such a cartoonish here is a glowing orb, and I'm taking it to my mom, and my mom's getting more powerful. And even say, they're giant mosquitoes or something. They take yeah. all your blood. They suck you out. But maybe you're still slightly alive on yeah. the verge of death. Your soul is still there, but they go and bring the blood. But it's just, it could have been anything else, and these existential questions we have would not exist. This has the exact same format and the exact same disappointment for me that Black Panther had. Black Panther is fantastic for the first two acts and sets up all these tribes and all these conflicts and all of these really interesting characters and these different personalities and viewpoints. And an then an amazing world, an amazing world. And then giant fight in a field with poorly CG rhinos and then Black Panther versus anti Black Panther fighting on a train track. It was, and, and then it goes back to being a good film again when you have this moment between T'Challa and Killmonger after the fight. Now it goes back to being an interesting movie. This followed the exact same pattern. But even for Black Panther, that was only the fight part of the third act. 
it's longer than you think. Okay. It's longer than you remember. Probably um, because not much happens there, even though a lot happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? During quarantine and COVID and everything, I went back and rewatched the entire MCU. And wow. I, my, yeah, my, my opinion of Black Panther went down a notch Aww. because that third act and those disappointments are much longer and more significant than I remembered. And Shang-Chi, it followed the exact same pattern down to the, and here's the giant army versus the other giant army. And here's our character at conflict with somebody in his family. <laughs> and the only difference in Shang-Chi that, that made it a, a little bit worse is that the central conflict of this movie is him and his dad. And no version yeah. of this movie should have ended with that dragon fight. If you want to have that dragon fight, that dragon fight gets resolved before or slightly before or simultaneously to him working out whatever with his dad, and whether then, it's violent or peaceful or whatever. The fact that that gets wrapped up and then you have 10 minutes of dragon fight and dragon resolution. Nobody, I yeah, don't care and, about the dragons. I do think Black Panther did it better. Yes. Yeah, because, I, I mean, this, I mean, I love Wong. Yeah. Okay. But this movie doesn't end with anything deep or meaningful like no. that. It just ends with them singing with Wong. And if you had, they could still entertain the general audience with that dragon fight yeah. and then just put the battle after. And then that's your deep and meaningful thing at the end. And it would have just been at least a good first movie. This, like the first Captain America, like the first Thor, uh, there are things about them that, and first Black Panther, that are very disappointing. But yet somehow... And this is something only the MCU seems to be able to do. I walk away from a movie and I think, well, that was disappointing. I can't wait for the next one. Because I know that now all the, the generic stuff's out of the way. So now we can go invent and we can have fun. Right. And we can just dive right into this world and into these characters and they can do new and interesting things. The only reason the Loki series, I think, is as is great as it is, is because we've already known that character. <laughs> and so we don't have to be introduced to him or who he is, or right. you get a little bit of catch up just because it's, it's, he's coming out of Avengers instead of, you know, Ragnarok. But at the same time, we know who he is. We don't need a lot of time with that. I don't know who Shang-Chi is. I don't know who his friend is. I don't know who his dad now, is. I got to meet all these people. Looking at the pattern, mm -hmm. we kind of know how Eternals will end up. Mm -hmm. So, Maybe. They, I, I'm right, going to defend okay. that in a minute. But, but but, right, assume that it does end the same mm -hmm. general idea as Shang-Chi mm -hmm. that we got. Say they go into each individual movies for these characters mm -hmm. after the team-up movie, and they can do the interesting, crazy stuff individually with these characters. Is that better? I think so. But it depends on, on what they, they set out to do. For instance, Doctor Strange... I love the first Doctor Strange movie. I think it does a really good job of balancing introduction with playing in that world. And I'm really hopeful that Eternals does that. Okay. And by the amount of time they've shown Celestials, and we haven't gotten much with Celestials yet in the MCU. No, we got a head. That's what I think. We haven't gotten Deviants. We haven't gotten Celestials. We got a and head so, and a Celestial yeah. on a planet hitting it yeah. with a spear. And so that's something where if the Eternals is a kind of a confluence of that, That'll be incredible. The youngest Eternal Sprite, uh, or the youngest looking Eternal yeah. Sprite, uh, the actress who plays Sprite in an interview recently maybe gave away too much, but said she does not like humanity. 
And that gave me so Ooh, much hope. And I know because what one your of the theory things, was. yes, my theory was that the Eternals are not a cohesive unit. That there is infighting, and that some of them have more compassion for humans than others. Some of them have grown jaded. Some of them have continued to love humans, and that's actually what the conflict's going to be. If the the director, I I cannot remember her name off the top of my head, but she's done some incredible independent film work. And much like John Watts came from independent film and did Homecoming and really infused character and inventiveness into that, I'm really hoping that's what happens with Eternals. And the actual conflict is not the stupid flying monsters. Right. It's it's this this philosophical battle between these beings that have known each other for a long time that have mm-hmm. a long-standing relationship but are at odds. These gods disagree on how to run the world. Exactly. And if that's where it goes, I think Eternals is going to work as an intro movie because that's exactly that's... the conflict that Doctor Strange did in the first movie. Doctor Strange is, look at these people who exist behind reality or who are able to exist behind reality and they have competing philosophies. And what happens when those competing philosophies come against each other. Out of curiosity, do you remember the name of the villain of Doctor Strange? Um, <laughs> the one, the human villain? The or one. Dormammu is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, dimensional. Um, Calicilius or... <laughs> it's something where silly is in the name because I remember Cilius, thinking I think. like, they really should have changed that a little bit so it doesn't say silly in the name. But it's played by Mads Mikkelsen. I don't remember him. Really? I mean, apart from... I, there was... There, I feel like there were some bad decisions about that because Maybe. aside from he looks a lot like his little minions yeah. for one, so he doesn't stand out that much. And then you don't really know much about him except for what um, the one that um, walks away at the end. I forget his name. I know, and um, Baron or uh, Mordo. Yeah, Mordo. yeah, yeah, Mordo. And and I can understand that. I I think he's a different villain. I don't think he's a villain that's meant to serve his own character arc. I think he's, he's there to show the hypocrisy of the ancient one and to lead strange into conflict with Dormammu and the idea that there's way more beyond. He's really just this gatekeeper that's trying to open the gate. And I don't think he's supposed to be more complicated than that. Now I've watched Dr. Strange like 12 times. It's one of my (laughs) favorite MCUs. And so I can't remember my first time, but I feel like I felt the same way as you. It's just because that it, first time I watched it. To me, it. it ends up feeling empty towards the end. Um you don't there wasn't and I don't think there always needs to be a big bad that the heroes trying mm-hmm. to chase after, but I feel like it's it's more important for Marvel movies at least and it didn't feel like a satisfying ending to me. Yeah. And I now, mean, Steven went through his developments and that was satisfying. Yeah. But fighting Dormammu really didn't have any meaning all of a sudden at the end they pull out this big uh you know galaxy ending threat and then they fight it that's not a threat throughout the whole thing but no. that's just one part of it well and i think otherwise it's a great entryway i i knew there was a problem with shang chi early on when i cared more about win Wu and i cared more about shang chi's sister Katie. And I especially cared more about I love Katie. Katie played by Aquafina. I thought I was gonna hate that character going in. Yeah. I thought now Aquafina's hey, done some, some really good work. Um not just in comedies, she's done some dramatic work and she's been really surprising. And in this again, she kind of steals the show. And um but but I found myself fascinated with all of these side characters and Shung just No, he was uh, Harry Potter. Yeah. 
yeah. In the first Harry Potter. Yeah, he was just... He was there. He's the boy that, that has magical abilities and that has to False, learn... Bedeshal. You know, how There's to nothing use wrong with him. The rings choose him, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't upset with this movie. I was let down by this movie. Am I going to rewatch it? No, and then, probably not. How much do you know about Iron Man comic stuff? I know quite a bit. And so I, the ten rings from the comics are actual finger rings. Yes. They're not bracelets. They are finger rings, and each one has, has a, a different, different power. power. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of hit things. Yes. So in this, two two things are possible there. Either they'll expand on that where different rings have different powers, but they didn't want to do it in this one because it's so similar to the Infinity Stones and Thanos hmm. when you do it that way. The other thing is Win Wu is a very... He's a hammer. He's not a scalpel. He just, he knows how to do one thing, break things. And so I could very much see them retconning it where, oh, dad just used these for power because that's all he wanted. That's all he knew. Okay. Whereas Shung is a much more kind of introspective character who could maybe learn that the rings do different things. It would be nice yeah. if they said just a little something about yeah. that. But it's not really required no and and again i think the big decision there is that's too similar to the infinity stones and what about them being like actual bracelets Does it, do you care about that at all no i actually like that because that's much more in line with chinese culture there are, there are weapons in chinese martial arts that are those heavy um there's a great movie called kung fu hustle and it's a an action comedy, a kung fu comedy that you will eventually be watching for this okay. podcast. But one of the characters on there wear these heavy rings, and it's used for striking and blocking and things like that to protect the forearms and That's to deliver cool. that makes it bigger blows. That makes it way better. And so they're not just bracelets; these are actual. The way he wears them is just like uh, this very specific weapon in in Chinese history, uh, which is kind of cool to me. So. Did any characters actually have genuine development in this besides Aquafina's Katie? Katie, Katie grows. Katie was it. Um, she learns how to aim. Yeah, because even Shang Chi's sister, she's definitely in a different place by the credit scene. We have no uh, idea love why. that, but she hasn't grown as a person. She's the same person at the beginning as she was at the end. I guess Shang's father. You see, she's not though. You see a lot of character. She change. doesn't hate Shang anymore. No, she's... you see Wen Wu soften up when he gets married and then darken when his yeah. wife dies and, and soften up again at the end. So there's a lot of character movement there. It's not really development. He's, you know, he goes back to being who he was, but that's, that's good for a villain. Um, well, I lied. Okay. There's about three seconds of development for him right at the end. Yeah, that's true. When he gives him the rings. Yeah. And there's nothing poetic about it. Not really. They wanted it to be. And I think it had the potential to be. It was just so noisy and so CG and so dragon versus dragon that it really took away from. And it keeps cutting back to the shore and Aquafina's character and, and the surprise character that's there, which I absolutely loved. But there's there's different things where it keeps surprise cutting away character. from. Yeah. Yeah. It'll come to you here in a second. The one I don't want to spoil because it was not in any of the trailers and it was great. And it was an MCU cameo from past film. Uh, that I did not expect to show up in this movie that oh. totally shows up and makes sense to show up okay. in uh, Win Wu's compound. Um, it was the pig with wings. Well, yes, his owner uh, or his friend. He had an owner? Yes. Well, oh, his friend. Okay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but but funny. I, um, 
I I really wanted more there, and I I think yeah. they could have, but they were so busy cutting back and doing that thing. And it started with Star Wars: Return of the Jedi has uh, a planet battle, a space battle, and a lightsaber battle. Episode mm. one has a planet battle, a space battle, and a lightsaber battle. Episode two has a planet battle, space battle, and a lightsaber battle. Episode three, I can go on and on. It go goes on. through seven, eight, go nine. On. <laughs> do you, should I yeah. keep repeating yes, it? Absolutely. Same thing every time. Uh, the only difference by episode nine, they're all on top of a Star Destroyer or whatever that is. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't like episode nine? I did like episode nine, but I still am very aware of its well, I didn't like episode nine. Large, large flaws. Um, but but Shang-Chi, I mean, ultimately, it just, it did not tickle my brain. No. It didn't engage me. It didn't have, again, that economy of filmmaking. It didn't have good economy of filmmaking. It packed a lot in. It was very flashy. But at no point was was my brain so engaged that I'm watching, you know, when I'm watching the fights, they're good fights, but they're not contributing to the character at all. I'm really bothered by his sister. Okay. Because she's really cool. And I like that. Yeah. I, I felt like she was just underwritten. Occasions, there's yeah, on multiple occasions she just isn't isn't well done. She's yeah. she's a she's a she's a pink steak. I think <laughs> I think I think the actress is is excellent. Sure. I think she does great with what she has. I but just even at the beginning when she's first introduced, she's out of there. Yeah. Doesn't care for a moment. She's and gone. And suddenly comes back. For no reason. And Plot's now, got a plot, all, Anthony. <sighs> Plot's got a plot. And then and then even what what does she do for the rest of the time? What is she? What is she doing that impacts the story? She, I guess, explains to Aquafina that if you're just quiet, he'll ignore you. My she, dad. She has no reason to be there except yeah. that she gives a necklace. Yeah. You could have just killed her, and he gets it from her grave. Well, and something. that's that's when my first sign of oh, Act Three is going wrong was that stupid forest. I hate that forest. That forest is probably <laughs> one of my my top three worst things in the entire MCU <laughs> wow. is that stupid shifting maze of Why a forest. Why do you hate it so much? It's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. It's just dumb. Uh, it's... A bunch of trees move and smash you if you don't go through a path at the right time to find this mis- Like, really? It just, do you, do you realize how quickly those two little pendants go in a stone and it opens the, the gateway to the city? That's it. It's just she took the key to her her land, broke it in two, and gave it to her kids. That's it. And then you don't have that stupid forest scene and the stupid, the trees are going to crunch us, oh no. Uh, <laughs> and, and no matter, regardless of going through that maze, if you just walk straight and I guess have a chainsaw or I don't know, fly <laughs> a drone over top of the entire forest and just land behind the forest, Magical, if, mystical world. What if the forest dodges your chainsaw? I don't know. Just take it a helicopter. Take a helicopter and land where the waterfall is. It'll Why dodge are you that going too. through this forest, man? Just fly. You got helicopters? What's the problem? Stupid. Stupid. You mean there's just so much that you, you think about with it that it's just ridiculous. Visually, it's not exciting. It's just, it's it's stupid. It's predictable, at least. It's Yeah. It just... <laughs> being, Wow, you're, I, you really hate it. I genuinely. Like, <laughs> that was the one I can thing. Be, like, I'm not super upset about it, but I can see what's going on. Wait till like, you watch it more it? than once because okay. this was my second time okay, when yeah, I yeah. went to watch it with you. And you even said you liked it better. And I did like the movie better. I did not. I hated <laughs> the forest more. Did you hate it? Oh, wow. Hated the forest more. Everything that was bad got worse. Everything that was good got better. Yep. A- absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, this has been our first episode of Cineprentice. Uh, keep your eyes open for uh, a special episode of uh, Cinebabble coming up where we talk about Midnight Mass. And then uh, we have a whole new slate of films for Cinebabble episode 40 after that. And at some point here, we'll get to 50 and we're going to have just a 50th anniversary bonanza special of some sort. We'll see In, what happens. Uh, six weeks. No, I 12 weeks. Sure. Something like that. Sure. Sure. Whatever. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. And uh, Anthony, thank you for uh, joining for another pod. And uh, we'll it's just... It's been fun. It's, it's always fun. It's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. So... Refine my pen. Uh, yeah. Go and go enjoy your, your real job and living life. and Absolutely. Don't go Max Fisher this up. Or maybe Max Fisher this up. Maybe maybe I just want my own character development today, maybe. Kenny. That's... It's probably better. Since I am better than you in every way. I know, but, you know, I only think in terms of movies, so. Well, I am the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're the protagonist here. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you all for listening, and uh, go be a protagonist in your own story. <laughs> that was cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay.